Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, why are rail blockades not coming down? And do Canadians need to invest more into the Indigenous issue? New polling shows Canadians are becoming frustrated. And how will Hamilton's $1 billion LRT money be spent? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As you may or may not know, with the, uh, with the, uh, the blockades coming down in and around the Belleville area, they have uh, popped up in other areas. Here's a clip. This is uh, Hamilton Police Constable Jerome Stewart uh, giving us an update on the rail blockade in Hamilton. Are there, although there is an injustice in place, Constable Stewart says they're not getting ahead of themselves while handling the protest. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to monitor the situation. Uh, what happens down the road, I, I can't speak to at this point in time. The number one objective here is to provide a, a peaceful environment and one t- once again maintain safety. Uh, he goes on to say he told the press that Hamilton police respect the protest uh, but discourage people from joining or providing them supplies. Uh, the protesters blockading the CP rail line in Hamilton. Um, if you try to fortify this, they may have something to say. Anybody who's down there is in violation of the court injunction. Hamilton police do respect the right of people's freedom of assembly, all right, and, and a peaceful assembly and expression of freedom. Not a problem with that. However, we have a court injunction that's in, in, pl- in place right now, and we're here to enforce that injunction if need. If Hopefully we don't get to that stage. Hopefully people will uh, leave the area peacefully. All right. Uh, to talk more about all of this and where we are now from a political standpoint, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University, and he is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Your thoughts on where we are now? Well, I mean, I think moments of, uh, you know, when people take on acts of civil disobedience, of blocking rail lines uh, <coughs> in, uh, you know, in uh, contravention of court injunctions and so forth, uh, produce a moment of a moral conversation in a country. Right? People who aren't really touched uh, immediately by the particular situation of the pipeline are nevertheless called upon to make sense of it because an inconvenience is posed on them and they have to decide uh, you know, whether they're going to ultimately back the police in making a decision to uh, expel the, the people who are engaged in civil disobedience or if in fact they're going to put pressure on the government to say, no, there's a real problem here and we want you to act differently. And so I think that's, you know, where we're seeing with these different blockades is really putting the heat up and making us have that conversation about uh, uh, do we simply see this as a problem of law and order and disorder or do we actually see this as a moment where we feel our governments have to make different decisions. Is this an issue between Canada and the Indigenous community as much as it is an issue between the Indigenous community, uh, that being the hereditary chiefs and those on the elected band councils, uh, on who represents the community? Uh, yeah, I think it's all those things and more, right? I mean, and, and in part because... Uh, uh, I think the way in which the situation is read and enacted, uh, you know, in the Hamilton area and in Belleville and in many different communities across the country will, uh, you know, be done on different readings of what's happening, and some of them quite distant from the specifics. But, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, we do have a very specific question about how uh, you know, decisions are made in a community and who can uh, properly speak for that community in terms of giving its consent or not giving its consent uh, uh, and in supporting or not supporting the blockades. But I think for a lot of Canadians, it uh, is also read at a kind of a more a broader angle to say, uh, if we are engaged in a process of reconciliation, what's that going to look like? To what extent uh, does it mean in certain situations not being able to move ahead quickly with projects that are important to the majority? Uh, you know, those those issues are also posed. And I think, you know, an additional one uh, comes forward in this question of how does one respond to the blockades. Um, to simply have a pure law and order response to say, well, this is the law of the land and these blockades, uh, you know, are uh, in defiance of the, pr- the private property rights of the railways or, or other uh, organizations, uh, businesses, uh, um, is one way of seeing the country. Uh, the other is to say, well, you know, Indigenous people are raising questions about uh, where that, you know, that private property came from, what the legal uh, orders are, the basis of that. 
And so simply saying we have to apply the law as it stands is, is probably not going to get to the heart of the difference. So there's a lot of different layers to this onion that are peeled away in this situation. Um, I agree this is an incredibly complex issue, but don't we have to start by knowing who the players are? Do we not have to start with a united front on both sides? Well, I mean, I, you know, part of politics is determining who gets to speak for different groups. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, to, to actually... But usually that's resolved within a democracy in, in Canada, uh, although now we're talking about a hereditary issue. So how how do you balance, how, how can a country, uh, other than provide guidance and a platform, how can we solve an issue within the Indigenous community? Is it not up to them to try to figure out who best represents them. Because what always, you know, in all of these situations, I mean, we've seen this happen time and time and time again, where elected band councils, and in some cases, the majority of the population of the Indigenous community wants something, and then the hereditary chiefs uh, decline that, and then sets off this chain reaction of protests, and it seems as if everyone is centered around the, the very few hereditary chiefs and not the other, and some say majority, of Indigenous people who actually want these projects to help lift them out of poverty. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, you're right. This is a recurring question in communities. and I mean, maybe- So if we don't know, if, if they or we don't know who is the leader, how can we solve any of this? I mean, as you mentioned, it's a layered onion, but the first layer is finding out who represents the Indigenous community. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're in a situation uh, where, as, uh, as a majority society, right, you're having to uh, move into negotiations, and you're right, you don't know who you're negotiating with, uh, that's incredibly frustrating and will obviously slow down the process. I guess part of it may be to say, why is it that the elected bound councils uh, are unable to actually produce, even in some situations, where, as you point out, where if you, you know, ran a vote, it seems like they're getting the majority of the votes, and yet they don't really seem to have the moral authority to speak for their uh, speak for their communities, or that their communities remain fundamentally uh, divided. I mean, part of it may be to say, why are those band councils so weak? And what is it about the manner in which they're working, or that they're funded, or their capacity uh, to provide, uh, uh, you know, a voice for their community? It doesn't have that power to make them the spokesperson in that community. And so, in a longer sense, I mean, part of it may be, well, what's the federal government doing in its relationship through the Indian Act? or through the manner in which it uh, funds or responds to these communities that it isn't producing the legitimacy of the elected band councils in those communities. And, you know, if it's not working that way, what could be done otherwise to improve uh, those relations of confidence and trust and enable, then, a, a more unified voice to emerge? So in the short term, I don't think there's, a, there's an obvious solution because these communities are fundamentally divided. But in the longer term, is there a process of governance that would make it uh, easier to have within communities a clear sense of what that community stood for and where those leaderships would have legitimacy among their own people. How can the Canadian government help that? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it's something that can be fixed. You know, it's something that takes many years to break can't always be fixed in, in a few uh, And, few I mean, minutes. Canada can always offer suggestions and guidance and, as I mentioned, a platform, but at the end of the day, these are decisions that have to be made within the Indigenous community on who represents them. Yeah, so I mean, I think part of it uh, is that, you know, the the frustration uh, with the lack of the unity of voice only comes up when that uh, frustrates, in a sense, the project, such as, uh, you know, putting through uh, this gas pipeline. Um, you know, in the time before that, the sort of uh, the problems within the community uh, don't come to the fore. And so, I mean, how could it help that? I, I presume in the longer term would be rethinking uh, structures of governance, uh, does it require stepping back and unbuilding the Indian Act, for instance, you know, which has been a slow-moving project, but one that might uh, go more quickly? Uh, could it involve uh, having a sense of, uh, you know, a capacity to put in place schools, uh, drinking water provisions, uh, health services, right, that responded to the community? With, with the presence of those services, uh, you, particularly if they are controlled in various ways by members of the community, increase a sense that the leaders doing that are actually the leaders who represent the community best. Um, We don't recognize an elective, if we don't recognize, again, whatever sort of government they decide or leadership they decide to uh, administer for themselves, 
it's is it difficult for Canada to recognize that if it's not established through democracy, um, if it's not established through uh, an election of some sort? Um, do we rec- are, are we recognizing the majority of the indigenous community here, or are we representing the elders that I guess speak for them? Is that allowed in a democracy? Well, I mean, I think an issue for the Canadian government uh, is that it prescribed one way of recognizing uh, the community's will, right? One that we're very familiar with because it's, uh, you know, akin to the idea of having a, a majority election and people voting in, uh, if you like, the local executive or legislature that's going to run the community. And it's something that's uh, recognizable to us not necessarily consistent with the traditions of governance and consultation and building consensus within a community that uh, had existed in many communities, each with their own kind of traditions in that. So, yeah, I mean, that does, I think, lead to a difficult moment when we're in a moment of reconciliation. Uh, Are Canadians willing, on the one hand, to say, well, maybe we have to let go of saying and prescribing uh, what that uh, community uh, leadership is going to look like, what that kind of democracy is going to look like, and I think that's hard for many Canadians. I mean, and so ultimately, do we have trust that those communities have the capacity to determine themselves in, an, in a democratic sense, and so that they don't need us to, to apply that kind of uh, overview? Or, uh, you know, do we not have that trust, and in which case we probably can't really enter into that moment of reconciliation because we still want to control what happens, how those communities negotiate themselves. So, uh, you know, we're a moment, I think, of important change in terms of how Canadians are thinking about that relationship, and, you know, it's, it's easy to speak uh, strongly and, and warmly about reconciliation, but it also is about the majority society giving up some of its control and as it's willing to have trust in its partners to govern themselves with integrity and honour, or at a certain point is there a distrust that wants to make sure that, well, if, if they're going to govern themselves, it has to look like forms of self-government that we're, we recognise and, and I, comfortable I, with. And I understand that hereditary chiefs don't recognize elected band councils because that's something through the Indian Act that colonialism has pushed on them. And it's our system of government, not their system of government. I heard uh, one expert say, you know, it's like you're setting the table and inviting everybody else to come there, but you have to tell them what to eat. Um, You know, I understand that. But uh, if that's what the majority of the community wants and if they've evolved into that as opposed to elders making decisions for future, that would almost be like the monarchy overriding UK Parliament, uh, in a sense. So I can understand that the hereditary chiefs don't recognize elected band councils because some see that as colonialism. But if that's what the majority of the indigenous communities are behind because they get a say, they elect these people, then why is this a discussion? Shouldn't it be what the majority of the indigenous community wants? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it kind of, it's, it's a bit the question of do you like something when someone tells you you have to have it versus when you get to choose it yourself? And so we might ask in some of these situations, can you really get to that choice uh, when that choice is prescribed by, say, the Indian Act? Uh, you take away the Indian Act, and maybe those communities would begin to ask questions of their traditional governance system to say, well, we see value in some of the ways you do things, but we also see value in this other way. But as long as the Indian Act is in place in those uh, structures where uh, a more elective structure is seen as an imposition and a colonial imposition, I think uh, the hereditary, hereditary chiefs uh, will always have power uh, to question that because it will be seen as an imposition. When that's taken away, then right. I think the dynamic in which a community talks about that, including probably how hereditary chiefs talk about it, and maybe finding uh, forms of compromise where ways that have worked well in the past and traditionally uh, get folded into uh, some aspects of a more elective system. You know, how, we, how you bring together clan systems, uh, different forms of consultation uh, with uh, forms of electoral democracy. But as long as, uh, again, as long as the Indian Act is there, I think it makes it really hard to find that way because it's something that's being imposed on you rather than something you might choose yourself. Uh, how difficult is it, will it ever happen, that the Indian Act is rewritten in some form? And if we're having these kind of debates now, will that be any easier? Well, I don't think it will ever be easy. No. And I don't think it's something that gets done once and for all. Uh, I mean, we have seen some mm, good point. Uh, limited sense, uh, you know, from the, the Trudeau government to try and change some ways in which the Indian Act has been put into place. 
Uh, I mean, going back even 20, uh, 25 years, there's been the development of self-governance agreements in a number of communities, again, to try and, and in a sense, give some air, right, to, to provide some space right. for communities to breathe. And uh, maybe a bit more air has to be put into it, and maybe some structures about learning from communities that have taken things on and what's worked for them, what the challenges have been. Uh, again, I mean, you know, it's a long-term project, but I think there's capacity uh, whether we've been moving quickly enough, given the impatience we've seen in indigenous communities for change and in the very youthful populations who want to see change for this generation and the next, maybe we have to move more quickly. But uh, I think we have seen a capacity uh, to begin to experiment. Peter Grant has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Fascinating discussion, Peter. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Daniel Ruck is with us, cross-appointed professor, Department of History in Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Obviously, this has been described as an incredibly complex issue. It seems whenever issues like this arise, uh, we end up at the same same sort of place. There's calm for a bit, and then something else uh, sparks it. Uh, I've heard many describe this as a a multi-layered onion and such. I guess my first question is, there seems to be issue here with the voice of the elected band council and the voice of the hereditary chiefs within the indigenous community. Can Canada do anything until um, the indigenous community uh, comes together on who speaks for them? Is that possible? Mm. Oh, thank you for that question. I, uh, I just recently wrote an article where we talked about the different responses of non-indigenous people to indigenous um, expressions of sovereignty, and this the, our play three that we identified was divide and conquer, and uh, we've seen this as a historian. I can speak to this too because it's a pattern in Canadian history that um, Canadian governments and British governments before Canada existed used, and not just in Canada but around the world used kind of divide and conquer techniques in order to get their way. I'm, I'm not trying to divide and conquer. Um, oh, I wasn't talking about no, 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 no. But, 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 and I understand that completely. But what seems to happen in these issues is government and indigenous elected leaders get together. They come up with a plan of some sort, and then in the end, it gets derailed by uh, hereditary chiefs, and and and. Some are wondering who is speaking for the community. How do we get beyond this so we have a united front on both sides in which to discuss the matters at hand? Uh, I'll just go back to my previous point, which was um, that even the existence of band councils, which are referred to as the elected, you know, the elected leaders in in indigenous communities are imposed by the Indian Act in the 19th century. So they don't recognize that. Often, sorry? So they are not recognized as a result. Oh, they're of course recognized. They're recognized by the Canadian government, right? And also the the Wet'suwet'en traditional government is also has been recognized by different courts and the different levels of Canadian governments have actually negotiated with them directly. It's just that when it comes to getting the pipeline built, um, if there's one Indigenous government that stands against it, then the, then the, the basic approach that Canada has always taken historically is to go with, um, go with the Indigenous government that supports them and to try to invalidate the other one. But in this case, it's the majority of those indigenous communities. It's not one and then the other. It's a couple and then the rest. Is it not? I mean, I we guess have, my, we I have guess one my government here that's that's being um, you know that's run according to indigenous law, according to Wet'suwet'en law, right? And those chiefs are chosen based on those rules, that constitution, those laws. Mm-hmm. And then there's the um, the band council system, and those those governments are chosen according to the rules of the Indian Act. Does one recognize the other? Well, I, th- I think we have to go back, we have to step back and think about who the Indigenous nations are in Canada and what, what is Canada's relationship to Indigenous people. So 
you know, something like the Wet'suwet'en communities represents a very large indigenous nation that's been intentionally split apart into band councils that then can be negotiated with right. separately, right. right? Rather than the Canadian government over and over again was unwilling to deal with indigenous nations as nations and wanted to split them into band councils mm-hmm. in order in order to get way precisely for projects like this because it's much easier to negotiate with a group of several hundred people rather than a, a group of several thousand people. How are the hereditary chiefs decided upon? Oh, I, I, I'm actually not an expert on that subject, and I would rather stick with um, my expertise in history and in the history of Indigenous Canadian relations. So I'd be glad to speak about that. But I'd, I've actually, I'd actually be glad to point listeners towards uh, Wet'suwet'en uh, spokespeople who are who are doing actually an excellent job of representing their governmental system mm-hmm. um, in, in different fora. One of the things I would I would I would point out to your your listeners is that this situation that we're in right now, which is like difficult, right? People are being inconvenienced. People didn't see this coming. It's a surprise. Um, But every time it happens, every few years this happens, this happened in Caledonia, this happened Mm -hmm. in Oka, this happened at Iprawash. It's a surprise every time for non-Indigenous people, but it's never a surprise to Indigenous people themselves because they're living this reality uh, every day. They're living uh, the kind of impositions of railroad lines, they're living uh, highways and bridges that having built, been built on their territory, pipelines against their will, etc. So it's it's one of those things that I that I want to point out to listeners of like this is actually an opportunity for us to learn something. Absolutely, uh, and and to try to remember actually this moment because we tend to forget um, because it doesn't affect us. Uh, in as deep of a way as, as it affects indigenous communities. Do we know what the majority of the Wet'suwet'en people, the community, wants? Uh, because I'm hearing the majority of them want the pipeline to go through because it means prosperity for them. It means a future. It means hope for the next generation. Uh, it's quite, it's, it's, that's quite... A, I mean, I, I, I reject the question because it's a, it's a leading question. Uh, I don't think anyone has actually good information. I haven't heard of any, uh, you know, company going in there asking, um, you know, asking for good statistics in terms of trying to get a sense for public opinion. But I think the po- the larger point is that at moments like this, Canadians always go back to the old stereotype about Indigenous people not being able to get together, not being able to be united. And I just want to point out to listeners that it's actually very normal for for any society to be divided, for every society to have differences of, of opinion, but what we have here is quite a power difference between Canada and corporations coming in and um, throwing quite a lot of money around and saying you have a choice here. But when someone actually says no, they're not actually allowed to say no. The uh, the no is clearly being rejected by Canada. So um, so the fact that. Uh the, the 20 or so communities along the route have approved this, that doesn't count. That doesn't matter. Well, you uh, do you actually, like, I would ask listeners, I would ask you, do you no, know please, what that approval please. actually means? Um, because what, No, we're what, all trying to, under, we're all trying exactly. to understand it. Yeah, so the, 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 the question I would ask is, what's the, what is the consent look like? How was consent achieved? And one of the slogans of all the land project protectors is that um, um, consultation is not consent. So what we do have in many of these cases, uh, corporate representatives will fly into indigenous communities, uh, visit for a day, uh, perhaps give some gifts, and then uh, receive uh, permission to go ahead for, with projects. And in Canadian history, that's, I mean, this is what Canada is built on. Canada is built on building railroads. It's built on building infrastructure. It's built on uh, getting, building mines mm-hmm. and uh, getting oil out of the ground, right? And uh, off the, on Indigenous land, against the will of Indigenous people in most cases. Um, uh, so even, even, uh, even now, the railroad blockades that we're seeing have a history. Yeah, um, yeah. Railroads go through... Indian reserves. Why? Because the land initially on those reserves was cheaper than other places, and so and, and often expropriated against the will of indigenous people. 
Um, but again, you know, I, I keep coming back to my conversation with Ellis Ross, who's uh, an MLA up in Skeena, BC, and, and elected band uh, member and such. And, and, you know, he said, I'm tired of going to funerals for uh, people who have no hope or have committed suicide or have become alcoholics because they're dependent on a government-subsidized poverty program. Here's an mm. opportunity for them to lift themselves. And this is what he's saying on the show. This, this is an opportunity for, you know, his community to lift themselves out of poverty and to be able to provide a future for their families. Is, is anybody listening to them? My heart goes out to all the people who are in those kind of situations who have so few options that they're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices and to accept any kind of crumbs that are thrown their way, right? Um, are these and, crumbs and, that are thrown their way? They have a, you know, a chance to, to build a whole community out of this. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the, those kind of questions. I right. think historically speaking, uh, what we're seeing here is patterns of uh, deliberate mm -hmm. impoverishment of Indigenous people. Why are, in, why are they in this place now? Why are they not able to become, uh, uh, why are they not able to achieve the kind of wealth that they had in the past? How were they dispossessed? Why is Canada trying to force a pipeline through an area where there's no treaty? There's no agreement. Canada has no legal right to put, to force Indigenous communities in those areas uh, to have a pipeline go through. Right. So, so I think those are the larger questions to ask in terms of why is Canada so interested in the rights of corporations and is so very, uh, not very interested in the rights of Indigenous people. Um, uh, again, you know, I, most would say that, or some would say, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, I would say, um, if you're bringing a project in prosperity, is that not helping? What's the alternative? Well, the, the alternative is, is uh, for Indigenous people to be uh, given the tools and to be given access to their land. We just had Indigenous people removed from their land so that a corporation could make money on their land. So this is an, an Are you talking about the blockades? Chance. I'm talking about Wet'suwet'en territory just a week ago. Right. Uh, those people were removed from their land, which is directly in contravention to Article 10 of the right. United Nations um, uh, um, Convention on the Rights of Indigenous People. So how so, do, how does the, and, and excuse my ignorance here, how does the in, Indigenous community move itself out of this poverty without such projects, what, whether it's past or present? Uh, I, I wish that people were asking that question with an open mind, because what, what Indigenous people are telling us is that they want to direct their own economic futures. They want to take charge, and they don't want it to be directed by, by Canada. I mean, if Canada wants to give them suggestions, if a corporation wants to come in and give them ideas... But they want to have options, and they want to direct it themselves. Based, and they and they want to. Is that not what uh, the, they want for Canada to be a good neighbor? Is that not what the elected that I heard recently describe it? Is that not what the elected band council is trying to do? Um, I mean, like I'm not so sure what the end goal is here. Or how to get there, and and you know I'm well, trying. Yeah, to... I mean, I guess that's it. I guess there's different assumptions here to come at this with. But indigenous people, uh, even those who support a pipeline, in most cases, will uh, will say that this is a question of indigenous sovereignty. Yeah. They should be the ones making their own decisions about mm -hmm. their own lands. And what we have here is the the the, um, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police removing indigenous people from their lands, which is as a historian, I can tell you that that police force was set up precisely to do that, to remove Indigenous people mm. from their lands. And so I think Canadians need to think carefully about the connections between these current events of, of police forces removing Indigenous people from their lands and the history of that, the continuous history of that happening. What can the Prime Minister do here, do you think, Daryl? Daniel, sorry. Pardon? What do you think the Prime Minister can do to help here? This Prime Minister has had, a, a, you know, beautiful words to say to Indigenous people. He's been talking a lot about reconciliation. 
He's been the the language that he uses doesn't sound violent, but when push comes to shove, he's um, he's doing the same thing as Canadian prime ministers have always done, which is to, uh, which is to remove indigenous people from their lands so that um, resource extraction can take place. Daniel so Rock I, has been what with. What I'd love to see from him Go ahead. Is, is a genuine commitment. To a, a, maybe we need to use a different form, a nif- different word rather than reconciliation, because Indigenous people are telling us at this point that, it, that reconciliation is dead. That's what Indigenous youth are saying. Indigenous reconciliation is dead, and the reason why they're saying that is, um, is be- because they, they don't see it as genuine. They see it as fake. Um, so what they're asking for is um, is for a genuine change in this colonial relationship. The, power, the, the, the power dynamic that says Canada is important and what Canada wants is important and what Indigenous people want is not important. Daniel Rock has been with us, Department of History, Institute of Indigenous Research and Studies at the University of Ottawa. Fascinating discussion, Daniel. Hopefully we'll chat again. Thank you. Have a good day. Let's bring in uh, Daryl Bricker. Uh, from Ipsos. An Ipsos poll shows that uh, Trudeau's approval rating will suffer as the view of the blockade grows more unfavorable. And Daryl is with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. What is uh, the latest Ipsos poll showing now? Well, it's not quite showing that. In fact, the the Prime Minister's approval level has gone down a little bit, but not a lot. But what's really changed is people's attitudes about the blockade and uh, the level of support there is for police intervention. So what's happened on this issue, Scott, is it's moved from being a discussion similar to the one that you just had with with that professor into one that's really about law and order. Uh, So over 60% of Canadians now, that's up about 10 points in the space of a few days, say that they don't support what's happening uh, uh, in terms of these blockades. And over 60% now, another movement of about 10 or 11 points, uh, now saying that they want the police to intervene to end it. So uh, give us those numbers one more time. 60% do not support blockades. Is that accurate? Correct. And the second one? Over 60% now want uh, uh, the police to intervene to end them. How do you explain the change uh, in, in, you said, 10-point switch in in a few days? Well, because it's moved from being an issue in the minds of the public of being about Indigenous rights to really being one about law and order. Right. And uh, at, at the end of the day, this type of disruption is generally not tolerated regardless of what the cause is behind it. People do not see this as an appropriate way uh, to make a political point. Uh, and as a result, you see the opinion hardening against uh, against the people who are uh, uh, who are causing this to happen. What about all of this hoping to open a broader discussion into uh, Indigenous rights and such? Yeah, well, we're moving off of that, uh, and we're moving into this being more of a, a discussion about law and order and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable uh, behavior uh, in uh, around causes and issues, uh, whether it would be the envir- environmental groups or whoever would be doing this type of blockading would probably be, uh, uh, would probably receive the, the same verdict from Canadian public opinion. Uh, there has been lots of chatter how this has sort of been hijacked by the anti-pipeline community. Does that reflect it in any way? No, I think people aren't really looking at the politics or the causes anymore. They're really just, just looking it over. at cost. And they're looking yeah. at what they see as something that they don't feel is a legitimate way of expressing political disagreement. Daryl Bricker has been with us, president of Ipsos. Daryl, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We all know about the uh, Hamilton Transportation Task Force that was put together, five members of the community, and the whole objection or object, objective here is to try to come up with a way to spend the $1 billion that was to be allocated to LRT after that was canceled. To talk more about all of this, Tony Valeria is with us, member of the task force and former MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. He is with us now. Tony, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get uh, started into the in what you can tell us and what you can't tell us, uh, obviously an extension here. Why the need for an extension? I understand this is bumped back to March 16th now. Yeah, so well into the uh, well into the work at hand, and uh, over this past uh, week or so, the committee members were you know deliberated around 
the amount of work uh, left and deliberations that we feel were left to, to get to a preliminary list of recommendations. And so it was decided to make the request for some additional time uh, in order to continue the dialogue with uh, you know, with you know, folks like uh, Metrolinx and and folks from the city of Hamilton, uh, Ministry of Transportation, uh, to get a better understanding of of uh, the projects that are on the table, uh, and then put them through the lens that we've established as a, as a task force. Uh, how often do you meet? How much of this is done outside of those meetings, or is everything done within? Uh, well, it, everything's done within the meetings. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of preparatory work between meetings uh, that the uh, that the Ministry of Transportation would provide because they're the secretariat for the task force. So they do, uh, you know, we request information and we ask for them to put together or coordinate uh, other experts to come to a, to a task force meeting. So. A lot of it happens in between meetings, but the actual deliberations themselves are amongst the, the task force members at the meetings. And so we're, we'll be on to meeting eight. Uh, will be the eighth meeting that we're into. So roughly every couple of weeks, or every twice a week, rather? Oh, yeah. I, I, we, we would be probably about twice a week, yeah. Okay. So uh, what can you tell us about what these meeting, what's going on in these meetings? I understand there's issues that you can discuss, you can't discuss. What can you tell us about what's happening there? Well, I mean, the the issues around the you know the uh, the confidentiality agreements really are about a, any sort of conf, uh, commercially sensitive uh, information, right? But so, but what I can tell you is that we spent as a task force uh, a significant amount of time at the front end of this process to really uh, put together a, a set of criteria. Um, and goals uh, that we were looking to achieve through this process. And so in order to do that, we looked at, uh, obviously, a lot of the information that the City of Hamilton has already compiled. Uh, so the City of Hamilton has a transportation master plan. Uh, council has uh, outlined the priorities for this council over this mandate. Um, there is a Greater Golden Horseshoe transportation uh, uh, plan that it, that takes you out to, I think it's 2031 or 2041 is, is sort of data that they're working on. So the first part of the process was really getting everyone um, aligned in the sense that people were all understanding the same information in terms of the, the master plans and the priorities of the province, Metrolinx, uh, and the city of Hamilton through its transportation master plan. And then what we did is we looked at that and we said, so what, what, would, be, what would be a set of criteria that we could now look at these uh, potential projects through? What lens could we look through? And one of the main criteria is obviously this billion dollars that the province has said has been allocated to Hamilton. Uh, we want to make sure that that billion dollars is first spent in Hamilton and is spent on uh, transportation uh, and transit uh, infrastructure that uh, that will uh, substantially benefit Hamiltonians and have an impact on on the economy. So the timing of projects, like how quickly can we get uh, projects uh, to a point that they are actually having a positive impact. Uh, we don't want to be in a situation where we're making recommendations for the billion dollars to be spent five years from now, right? So we have a much shorter yeah. window where we want to see this billion dollars spent. Some of the concern, some of the concern of those who were pro uh, proponents of LRT said that they were worried that this was just going to get gobbled up with maintenance stuff, stuff that the province would normally have to pay for anyway. Uh, how do we make sure that this is is being put towards city building projects as opposed to just filling potholes or or making changes that would have been done anyway? Yeah, so that's a very good point, and and I think certainly the task force has has made it very clear that the billion dollars that's being allocated and spent in Hamilton is being spent uh, for the benefit of Hamilton, right? So. Um, when you well, filling of, potholes would be for the benefit of Hamilton, but we don't want to waste money that was it, supposed to be meant on a capital project to yeah, stuff that your yeah, tax would, dollars are going to anyway. Yeah, but would, would filling hot, potholes substantially change 
the transportation yeah. or transit system in Hamilton? I would argue not, right? And so that's, yeah. that's part of a lens and that's part of the criteria, that the money will need to be allocated to projects that actually move the dial and look at the connectivity or the interconnectivity in, in the city from a transit perspective or the connectivity to go. Uh, or, you know, the city has a, a cycling master plan. Um, you know, so, so we're looking at projects that will substantially benefit Hamiltonians and substantially benefit the economy of Hamilton or the economy of Hamilton, right? So it's not about potholes. It's not about doing what the province has already, you know, said that they would do. Mm -hmm. um, there are instances where, you know, you look at some projects in the Transportation Master Plan or the Greater Golden Horseshoe well, that might be on the books. There's all, you know, when you look at these projects, you like say, so could you accelerate the benefit? Like, could you accelerate the project and therefore have Hamilton benefit earlier for, uh, from a transit, transportation or transit perspective? I mean, those types of projects you look at, but again, they have to meet the criteria and they have to meet the thresholds that we talk about as a task force. There is no question that the recommendations that this task force will make will be made uh, with the the goal of achieving a substantial benefit for Hamiltonians and the city of Hamilton. Uh, we know that the billion dollars was initially for LRT. Uh, what about transit versus roads? Will this go into highways? Some were concerned of that. Yeah, and, and I think when you look at the Greater Golden Horseshoe uh, plan or you look at the uh, Transportation Master Plan, there are some highway uh, projects that are there. Uh, but again, right, uh, you have to look at it and say, can, will this benefit Hamilton uh, and will this make a substantial change for Hamiltonians in Hamilton, right? So we're, we're looking at it from a very wide perspective. That wide perspective will then be narrowed as these projects go through this funnel of that criteria of, you know, can you spend the billion dollars in short order? Uh, will it have an impact on, will it, will it reduce climate change, which would be like a priority of this council? Will it improve the, connected, uh, the connectedness of the transit uh, system in Hamilton? So this criteria will start to uh, eliminate some of these projects that, uh, that we're seeing. Is the LRT still on those lists of projects? Is it still an option? Is it dead? Where is it in all of this? Well, again, I mean, I, like I said, the projects that we're looking at are all projects that have had uh, work done by the province, uh, Ministry of Transportation, Metrolink, City of Hamilton. So has LRT uh, come up in all of this, you know? Or so keep... sure, we, we, we've discussed LRT. We've, uh, we've uh, you know, we've talked to uh, various people about different LRT projects and different LRT models. Uh, We've got a billion dollars to allocate here. And so, uh, like the terms of reference have said, uh, which are available, the terms of reference clearly state that the LRT is part of our deliberation and part of our, part of our discussion. So all of it is still on the table. But what are the real chances here, Tony, of this coming full circle and Hamilton ending up with an LRT here? Well, ultimately, uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, we're going to make recommendations to the minister and the minister will, will ultimately decide. We have a billion dollars to allocate uh, for projects. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't prejudge the task force nor prejudge what the minister is ultimately going to do. But I know that the responsibility of the task force and the task force members is to look at the transit and transportation projects with the amount of resources that we have available and make sure that Hamilton and the city of Hamilton and Hamiltonians are getting the best bang for that billion dollars. So now extended to March 16th. After March, uh, March 16th, you hand in your report. Uh, what then happens? What happens after the March 16th? Well, after the uh, the sixth, after once we submit our report, uh, my my understanding is that there would be, uh, you know, we we would have a bit of a, um, we would present it to the minister. Uh, the minister would then, uh, you know, along with provincial officials, I would I would uh, expect would engage with the task force to to understand and undertake some, you know, some further due diligence and some further comprehension of the recommendations that we have made. And then uh, the minister would uh, release whatever uh, information, uh, you know, in terms of recommendations that would come to the public. Any idea of, an, of a timeline with that? I mean, obviously you're not in government, but in, once it gets in their hands, I guess it's up to them. But any idea when w Hamilton will know either way what's going to happen here? 
Uh, difficult for me to say, as, as you mentioned, like I'm, I'm not part of that conversation, not part of that process. What I'm focused on is making sure that the task force can submit the recommendations uh, that we've asked for the two-week extension. Our intent is continue to work diligently to uh, to meet that date or or get or submit earlier. Um, the sooner that we begin the dialogue with the ministry around preliminary recommendations, in my view, the sooner we can we Hamilton can benefit from that billion dollars. Uh, can you tell us if, because uh, I'm getting notes from listeners here, uh, the 403 interchange is on this or the Waterdown bypass? So uh, all of those projects would be on either, you know, the... Uh, the transportation master plan, or 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 the Greater Golden Horseshoe, or, or they would be uh, identified in existing transportation plans, and so they are all part of uh, of the discussion and deliberation. Tony Bellari has been with us, member of the task force, who uh, now has till March 16th to uh, come up with some great ideas on how Hamilton should spend the one million dollars that was allocated for LRT. Tony, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. All right, let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor, Raise the Hammer, raisethehammer.org, to find out more. He is with us now. Ryan, uh, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Absolutely, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And you? Good, thank you. Your thoughts on this being uh, this task force being extended to March 16th and where we are now? It, it uh, had a very general conversation with Tony Valeri. Um, not a lot new there. What are your thoughts so far? What are your concerns? Who could have guessed that coming up with a plan to spend a billion dollars in transportation would take longer than a month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, uh, you know what, and that's no discredit to the members of the task force. Yeah. I have, I have every confidence that you know that they're doing the best to carry out uh, the mandate that's been handed to them. You know, it's it's kind of a, a rotten job. I wouldn't, yeah. Um, you know, I, w- I wouldn't wish it on someone who I who I liked a lot, but it's you know they've they've been willing to step in and try and make a difficult decision that's probably going to piss everybody off, no matter what they decide. Uh, I um, did ask him about maintenance versus city building, because uh, obviously some are concerned that this money is just going to be blown on stuff that the province should be spending uh, our tax dollars on uh, anyway, whether it's fixing roads or such. He he did seem to say that and clarify that it would not go towards that. Uh, is that reassuring in any way? Yeah, and I actually listened to Mr. Valeri's interview with uh, with your colleague Bill Kelly this morning, and uh, you know he he certainly presented uh, um, an encouraging argument that the mandate they're looking for is is how can they invest this money in a way that's going to produce an economic benefit that's going to meet the city's strategic goals, you know, including uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing congestion, uh, you know, improving economic activity. Uh, these are all the right kinds of considerations to be um, to be looking at, and they're also the, he also clarified that they're looking that they're not planning on bringing kind of new ideas to the table that aren't already yeah. part of the discussion. So they're going to come back and say, okay, uh, it's going to be gondolas, right? It's it's, it's going to be uh, ideas that we yeah. already have as part of our mix. Um, for me, to be honest, uh, you know, the, th- the part that really struck with me was when he said that they want to be able to recommend plans that can be deployed quickly. Mm. And, uh, you know, again, for a billion dollars, for that much money, it takes a year yeah. to develop a plan to the point where you're actually ready to, to deploy on it. We actually do have a plan that's ready to deploy right now, yeah. and that's LRT. Uh, do you think this is still an option? I did ask him if it was still on the list. He said yes. Um, but again, uh, where, where do you think it fits into all of this, considering this all started because they rejected it? Sure. I mean, initially, um, the city converged, you know, and the province converged on this LRT plan because it provides the biggest overall benefit in terms of reducing congestion, in terms of connecting within the city and also connecting to go and regional transit. You know, you and I have talked about the importance of that in the past Uh, in terms of reducing greenhouse emissions, you know, um, encouraging economic activity and economic development. The the rules haven't changed, right? Nothing in the situation or context has changed to make LRT no longer the best project to deliver on those goals. I think the province made a huge mistake when they canceled the LRT project. Uh, they made they canceled it based on ridiculous numbers that nobody takes seriously. Uh, and and I think they acted capriciously, and I think they acted um, on bad advice. I think they thought that they were going to cancel this and that Hamiltonians would be relieved. Instead, what they've learned, uh, perhaps to their chagrin, is that this was a popular 
albeit controversial project, uh, that had checked a large number of boxes that should be important to the Conservatives, including being open for business. And uh, and I think this has uh, provided them with a, a backdoor that they can use to bring this project back on the table and save some face while doing so. At the end of the day, there will be, if they don't choose the LRT, there will be no surprises here because, as Tony Valari said, that this is all lists of stuff that are already there. They don't want to uh, suggest something that's going to, you know, take them five years to to make a decision on into the next government and such. So at the end of the day, it's not like they're going to pull something out of their hat that everybody's going to go, oh, well, that's that's as good as the LRT or that's better or that's, I mean, these are just projects checks we already know about no exactly yeah and you know again if you look at the mix of various different projects you know he mentioned things like um you know uh, batting in bike lanes uh transit you know there's there's lots of of, there's lots of good ways that you can spend that money but in terms of the transformative potential which is really what we're what we're interested in here and i think it's something that mr valeri has has touched on more than once this idea that this should be something that delivers a real net benefit to the city I can't think of any other project that does as good a job, if not, a, if, you know, let alone a better job than LRT in terms of transforming the way the city grows and develops. Yeah, I would agree with that. How much, uh, again, are we all naive to think that LRT is still an option here? How much is it going to cost after they've just shut everything down to turn around and fire it back up again? I mean, the whole idea here was, uh, the whole reasoning for this was that it was going to cost more than what anybody anticipated. Well, uh, you know, if they were to start it again tomorrow, I think the price would just go up again, considering what the exercise we're going through now. No? You're right. I mean, canceling the project and then restarting it, certainly all of the analysis, all of the design, all of the engineering, none of that stuff has been thrown out. We can still use that. Metrolink still owns... It's not like the Avro Aero. They haven't taken all the models and flown them into the uh, Lake Ontario yet. I mean, you think this is still salvageable? Exactly. They haven't flown the plans into the sun yet. Uh, so that's a good sign. Uh, but, you know, it certainly there, there's... I mean, it, it was a bad idea to uh, to cancel it. And, uh, and that is... Um, that opportunity is gone, right? We've already lost the time. We've already lost the money that's been wasted. Uh, but the numbers that they used to justify canceling it were were fake numbers. I mean, there's no other way to put it. This idea that it suddenly cost $5.5 billion, there's just no basis for it whatsoever. The government's own internal analysis finds that that's not the case. So, you know, it's not going to cost as much as they were warning it's going to cost. And hopefully we can get some clarity on that. And whether it means partnering with the federal government to get some additional bridge funding, whether, you know, it means looking at some kind of a financing arrangement that involves Leona. Like, there's lots of options on how to close that gap in terms of financing it. But it really is the best project, given the mandate that the task force has. Ryan McGrill's been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer, raisethehammer.org, to find out more. Ryan, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Likewise. I really appreciate the opportunity. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.